Welcome to Webinarchy Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinarchy Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinarchy perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Webinarchy Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the 12th show. It is the last show in our part one series on unpacking sovereignty. We will review highlights of our discussions uh, from 70, 1776 treaties to just prior to the Settlement Act. We'll wrap up uh, this series with our observations of sovereignty. We'll be talking with Professor Harold Prince. Uh, Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and emeritus at Kansas State University, a well-known Webinaki historian, and Professor Darren Ranko. Professor Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and an associate professor of anthropology and chair of the Native American Studies uh, at the University of Maine. So let's begin our review uh, with the treaties and the relevance of them and uh, why they're so important. Harold. Uh, good morning, uh, Donna and uh, Darren. Uh, it's an honor to uh, be on your show. Um, uh, and um, I think it's a very important uh, subject that you have um, raised because uh, many people don't really understand the importance of history. And if you don't understand history, you don't understand where the political uh, fissures are today. There's a lot of issues that are before the legislature and before the governor's of, uh, at the governor's desk, and they have to do with um, history as unfinished business, and uh, history is always unfinished business. And so, uh, in this particular case, um, when we reflect on treaties, these treaties are not just documents that were uh, signed in years like 1796 or 1818 or 1820, in the case of the Penobscot or 1794 in the case of the Passamaquoddy. Um, but these uh, treaties themselves are the outcomes of negotiations um, whereby one party, uh, in this case, the state of Massachusetts in 1796 and in 1820, the state of Maine, is more or less dictating the conditions of survival for the um, Wabanaki, in this particular case, the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy. And to go back to um, uh, the 1796 treaty, the major problem uh, of that 1796 treaty is not only the humiliating uh, elements in that um, document that was forced upon Chief Orono and the other chiefs of the Penobscot Nation, it was humiliating because basically they had no say at all in the writing of that contract. There was no copy made in the Penobscot language, uh, they basically were given a document that they could sign. Uh, it's uh, hardly uh, the normal business of what you would understand a treaty to be. Um, but one reason why we see that um, that 1796 treaty is so problematical is that Massachusetts, which had sent three commissioners from Boston to what is now Bangor, used to be called Kanduskeg, uh, right below the, the head of the, 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 the tide, uh, is that the commissioners knew very well 
that uh, the treaty of 1796 was in violation of a important federal law that had been signed in 1790, and that was the Non-Intercourse Act. And the Non-Intercourse Act of 1790 expressly prohibits anyone to make a treaty uh, without that treaty to have been A, supervised by a federal <laughs> official, and B, um, had to be ratified by US Congress. And Massachusetts knew darn well that they were not complying with uh, that. And the reason we uh, need to uh, look quickly at the Non-Intercourse Act that plays such an important role in the main Indian land claims um, uh, settlement case that was um, started really in the late uh, 1960s and then uh, created the turmoil out of uh, titles all over uh, Eastern Maine and Central Maine uh, throughout the 70s that uh, held up many townships from raising money through bonds. They couldn't raise money because there was a claim on their lands. Uh, and that was settled out of court in uh, 1980. Uh, and I know that you want to talk about that in a second series. Uh, so I don't, don't want to dwell on this, but I just want to point out that the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act uh, was instrumental in the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act of 1980. And it addressed a problem that I just alluded to with respect to the signing of the 1796 treaty. The 18, 1818 treaty in my view is much less important than the 1796 treaty because the 1796 treaty uh, involved a major shift in structural power uh, in which the state of Massachusetts uh, imposed uh, a set of uh, rules, if you will, on the Penobscot nation by which a reservation was created, number one, there was no reservation before that time. People forget that to today, that, that what we now know as the Penobscot Reservation, however, that has changed in terms of size, uh, but there was no Penobscot Reservation until 1796. And the reason there was no um, uh, reservation was that Chief Arno and um, uh, Chief Arsong Neptune and the other uh, chiefs had repeatedly rejected the signing of treaties that were presented to them uh, as totally unacceptable. And it happened first in 1784, the year after the end of the American Revolutionary War. Then it happened again in 1786, happened again in 1788. And then uh, they finally were forced to sign, not because they agreed, but because the knife was on their throat. They realized if they didn't sign in 1796, they might end up with absolutely nothing at all. So this was not by free consent. Uh, but this was under force, under duress. The, um, just before um, uh, I end this on the 1793, it's good for people to realize that George Washington had just been elected uh, as the first president of the United States when the Non-Intercourse Act was, um, uh, became law. Uh, the Constitution uh, of the United States was uh, accepted after two years of hard work in 1789. And that set up the structure of the Federal Republic. Before the time, uh, the states had much more uh, sovereign power, uh, but that ended uh, when the Federal Republic, the Republic of the United States had its own constitution and a, a United States president. And so, uh, but this is what uh, the executive power of the president includes. And it was from 1789 in the American constitution. The president of the United States shall quote, have power by and with 
the advice of and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two thirds of the senators present, present concur. So that's the uh, uh, Article 2, Section 2. Now, if you look at the Non-Intercourse Act um, of uh, July 22, 1790, that follows then from the assertion of uh, federal power uh, with the head of the executive branch, the United States uh, president, in this case, uh, George Washington, the, uh, the act, the first act, the Non-Intercourse Act of 1790 provides the following, no sale of lands made by any Indians or any nation or tribe of Indians within the United States shall be valid to any person or persons or to any state, whether having the right of preemption to such lands or not, unless the same shall be made and duly executed at some public treaty held under the authority of the United States. So that's um, the, the right of preemption that gets a little bit too complicated for your audience to get into. So I want to skip that. It's not really all that important for our current discussion. But what is important is that the Seneca, as the most powerful of the uh, six Iroquois nations, um, they had unfinished business uh, with, um, uh, with the United States uh, on tribal lands, uh, millions and millions of acres in upstate New York and Western Pennsylvania. And what's interesting is that they write a letter to George Washington uh, and actually come to um, to um, to um, uh, Philadelphia, where the, the government was at that time uh, located. They have a delegation sent there, and it was the chief uh, corn planter, half town, and great tree. He was three of the chiefs came to Philadelphia with their interpreter, and they opened their uh, letter to the president of the United States, George Washington, as follows. This is uh, on 1 December 1790. So that's at the same year of the Non-Intercourse Act that I just referred to. To the great counselor of the 13 fires, meaning states, Father, the voice of the Seneca nation speaks to you, the great counselor, in whose heart the wise men of the 13 fires have placed their wisdom. It may be very small in your ears, and we therefore entreat you to hearken with attention. For we are about to speak of things which are to us very great. When your army entered the country of the six nations of the Iroquois, we called you the town destroyer. And to this day, when that name is heard, our women look behind them and turn pale, and our children cling close to the neck of their mothers. Our counselors and warriors are men and cannot be afraid, but their hearts are grieved with the fears of our women and children and desire that it may be buried so deep as to be heard no more. When you gave us peace, we called you father because you promised to secure us in the possession of our land." End quote. So to that letter, uh, George Washington, uh, three and a half weeks, almost four weeks later, on the 29th of December, 1790, this is what he wrote back to the Seneca chiefs. And it also applies to the uh, Penobscot, to Cherokee, uh, the Chickasaw, all the tribes in essence, because the Non-Intercourse Act applies to all of them, uh, not just to the Iroquois. Uh, this is what George Washington wrote. Uh, I, the president of the United States, by my own mouth and by a written speech signed with my own hand and sealed with the seal of the United States, speak to the Seneca Nation and desire their attention and that they would keep this speech in remembrance of the friendship of the United States. I have received your speech with satisfaction as a proof of your confidence in the justice of the United States. 
and I've attentively examined the several objects with you, you have laid before me, whether delivered by your chiefs at Yoga Point in the last month to Colonel Pickering, or laid before me in the present month by the corn planter and other Seneca chiefs now in Philadelphia. In the first place, I observe to you, and I request it may sink in your minds that it is my desire and the desire of the United States that all the miseries of the late war should be forgotten and buried forever. That in future, the United States and the six nations of the Iroquois should be truly brothers, promoting each other's prosperity by acts of mutual justice and friendship. I'm not uninformed that the six nations of the Iroquois have been led into some difficulties with respect to the sale of their lands since the peace. But I must inform you that these arose before the present government of the United States was established when the separate states and individuals under their authority undertook to treat with the Indian tribes respecting the sale of their lands. But the case is now entirely altered. The general government only has the power to treat with the Indian nations and any treaty formed and held without its authority will not be binding. Here then is the security for the remainder of your lands. No state nor person can purchase your lands unless at some public treaty held under the authority of the United States. The general government will never consent to you being defrauded, but it will protect you in all your rights. Hear well and let it be heard by every person in your nation that the president of the United States declares that the general government considers itself bound to protect you in all the land secured to you by the Treaty of Fort Stanwix 1784, accepting such parts as you may since have fairly sold to persons properly authorized to purchase of you. Um, and then it goes on, but um, uh, this is George Washington in clear terms uh, talking about uh, the unauthorized uh, sale and is basically saying that's in violation of uh, the federal government and its own constitution because the constitution vests that power with the, United, the president of the United States, not with three commissioners from Massachusetts who are sent off uh, from Boston to Kanduskeg, alias Bangor, uh, six years later. Uh, Harold, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, um, sorry, Donna, uh, this is Darren. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think this um, interest, um, what becomes sort of the, a federal sovereign interest is something uh, we'll, we'll take up uh, later, but I think that, Obviously, in the context of where we're at, the, um, the the role of the federal government in sort of tribal um, and Wabanaki kind of um, rights vis-a-vis -vis our treaties are, are is a very critical factor in what in what comes later. One one context, and and you alluded to this, Harold, uh, that I want to drive home as we're sort of beginning this wrap up for today, is the the. The treaty making context that you described quite well, which is sort of this unequal, um, um, not a not not anything that we would be would, that would most people would consider, you know, uh, a fair contract uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and probably given the duress of the signers on one side, the indigenous people would not be considered a valid contract um, um, in terms of current standards of contract law. Um, one one really important part of this, in terms of um, the 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 inequalities and duress, um, has to do with the doctrine of Christian um, discovery and domination, and of course this you know this plays into the structure 
um, not only the structure of what are the treaties really about. Uh, oftentimes, the treaties were um, a European power uh, staking a claim to a, a certain indigenous group or lands vis-a-vis um, -vis and against other European powers. Um, and that's what the Doctrine of Discovery basically says in terms of a property or, or, or contract context is it basically said <clears throat> only European Christian nations as sovereigns have the right to claim um, any territory um, currently being occupied by indigenous people. Um, they applied this in, um, as this became, you know, sort of church made originally in papal bulls from the 15th century, and then later with clarifications of what each <laughs> quote unquote Christian nation had a right to uh, compared to non-Christian entities or nations is that it set up a hierarchy where true title and true negotiation uh, of title could only be done by a Christian nation. So I think this, and this gets transferred eventually into the American, into the American uh, state. But what goes along with this uh, Christian doctrine of discovery and domination is um, a form of supremacy, first explicitly religious, you know, saying only Christian nations have this right to kind of identify and, and, and occupy title. Um, but it also, it reinforces this, what later becomes a racialized hierarchy, beginning of course as a, a, a religious hierarchy. Um, and it is not merely a relic of the, of, of the 15th century or really it's, it's an original sort of apparatus starts with the crusades in the 11th century, basically saying European Christians have a right to um, these lands far away and therefore must occupy them. Um, and just to paraphrase Robert, um, the legal uh, uh, scholar, Robert J. Miller, you know, this, the doctrine is not just some, you know, as you mentioned, Harold, just some relic of world history, um, but it's, it remains. It's the principle that remains in our law and are embedded in treaties often and clearly in uh, both the, the legal frameworks that frame up the Non-Intercourse Act, but also uh, in the federal Indian law, common law principles um, that continues to limit the human sovereign commercial and property rights of indigenous people. Um, and of course, this has been used by European and then later the, the American settler nation states to justify all sorts of things to acquire riches and empires and lands. Um, and it is really justified um, through this ethnocentrism, which uh, again are cultural, racial, religious, and then governmental as well. So, you know, often, you know, over the course of our time together, I have I've referenced, you know, a few interesting elements that kind of bring bring this together. Um, the first is, you know, in the state constitution that recognizes on the one hand a category of Indians not taxed in our state constitution, which I, I have argued um, that one way to interpret that is a recognition of our sovereignty as, as Wabanaki nations. Another interpretation, and I think one that sort of is supported by the actions of the state of Maine and, and um, the uh, much like the founders of the United States Republic, the founders of the state of Maine at various terms, and we talked about this, were 
land speculators themselves, right? So they were interested in maintaining this hierarchy, recognize Indians not taxed as a category, and then um, using that as a category to disabuse people of their lands and rights um, to the extent that they had been still reserved through treaties and other forms of um, um, rights. Uh, so I, I believe that that category Indians not taxed was used by the state government and then these sort of quote unquote, you know, the kinds of fake treaties that will say claimed, you know, the four townships by uh, of the Penobscot townships and in, in the in the Millinocket area, that that um, that these hierarchies are sort of what um, are always resorted to and justified um, for this sort of, you know, is this is this kosher or not? Um, you know, what is the explanation of these sort of uh, in, in equal relations? And you see, for example, in the Merch v. Tomer case from 1842, um, justification of these various forms of control by referencing the imbecility of our nature as indigenous people. So motivating these very um, dubious land transactions vis-a-vis -vis treaties, um, is also revealed uh, in addition to this federal interest, which is also a legacy of the doctrine of discovery, right? The sovereign European and then American state having this sort of really important central role in, in terms of the power, but really not um, by always kind of uh, uh, subordinating indigenous people and claims to um, rights and reserved, even reserved treaty rights, which are disabused through uh, various forms, like in the, you know, 1892 case of State v. Newell, just saying, ah, I don't, we don't think they're a tribe anymore. <laughs> so there's all these, like, uh, you know, it, 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 it allows for justifications of, of, of ignoring even the promises from previous treaties, and you only see these as, as, as to your letter from Washington, you only see these really Inter the interests of federal control coupled with indigenous rights really uh, in, in the spaces of, of where we as indigenous people tend to, tend to uh, um, uh, be victorious legally and, and otherwise. Um, and you know, I will say that uh, much like the Non-Intercourse Act from 1790 is the sort of legislative and executive incorporation uh, of, of the doctrine of discovery vis-a-vis the, the supremacy of a kind of federal um, sovereign authority, you know, it's it's in the 1823 U.S. Supreme Court case Johnson v. McIntosh, which only three years after the state of Maine is is created, um, that you have this um, common law tradition vis-a-vis um, -vis federal Indian law bringing in this doctrine of discovery of sort of European now American and Christian supremacy over indigenous people that allows for dictates and disabusing um, going forward. Uh, much like in the Merch v. Tomer decision, their uh, Supreme Court Justice um, John Marshall uh, talks about in the Johnson v. McIntosh case, the character and religion of indigenous inhabitants afforded an apology for considering them as a people over whom the superior genius of Europe might claim an ascendancy. And that part of the compensation that was made uh, in terms of giving up this, you know, idea of sovereign control that we have as indigenous people was that 
Europeans and then later Americans were bestowing upon them civilization and Christianity in exchange for unlimited independence. That is the wording from, from the Johnson v. McIntosh case. So if you think of the transactional nature not simply as one that is about land for protection or you know vis-a-vis -vis other European powers, but um, this idea and so many of the assimilation tools, right, were justified by saying, oh, you're giving up more land, but we're giving you <laughs> against your will, civilization and Christianity and not allowing for, you know, a freedom of choice. I guess people believe America is about freedom, but not allowing a religious or, or cultural freedom of choice for indigenous people merely because we are indigenous um, is part of the structure of this process vis-a-vis -vis which, you know, the sort of federal versus state authorities get needed out. Um, more in their own competition to decide which laws, whose, whose supremacies are really uh, functioning. So I do think that the tensions that you identify with the, the Washington letter, and then this overall structure of European and Christian and forms of white supremacies that kind of mediate, you know, later decisions about how to interpret or, or employ uh, and respect previous uh, treaties become a really um, critical part of describing especially what happened um, in Maine um, in the 19th century vis-a-vis -vis our lands as indigenous people. I just, I just want to say something. All that being said, and you, and you said a great deal, all that being said, what it boils down still to is economics. It's money, uh, it's power, and it's control. Yeah. And, and, and regardless of the uh, theology or the paradigms behind that, that's what it's about. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to put in because this is right through Harold's uh, framework with the Washington letter, I think, um, you know, calling someone a land speculator. <laughs> well, let's just say that that's that land is the most valuable commodity right in the 18th into the 19th century. Still right? is, so, still is. And, and still maybe is right. I agree. Still but, is. <laughs> and I think that um, that idea of revealing motivation to use these forms of supremacy um, is very powerful. It, it, it definitely, you know, you know, why form the state of Maine? Like, why form the state of Maine at all? I mean, I guess there were these other discussions going on and votes and, you know, this um, struggle with slave versus free states in the context of the union. But ultimately, what, what motivates that, and Harold gave a lot of great details of these various coalitions of land speculators, right, that are forming what becomes the, the state of Maine, you know, in terms of these prospectors and, and speculators that those are, those people are the engine by which Maine becomes a state, which and they're speculating not with land that they already had, but land that they were sort of angling for title of vis-a-vis these treaties, right? These quote-unquote agreements with indigenous people of which, you know, were a series of manipulations to, to presume control over. Okay. Carol? Yes, um, just to um, uh, 
connect to the, the points that Darren uh, and you were making. And uh, Donna, when you summarized it, it basically comes down to money and power. Uh, I think uh, that's uh, the basic thing that you said, money and power uh, coupled with land, uh, because land is the major source of wealth before it is turned into a commodity, right? Uh, land just lying there by itself is land, but uh, when it becomes real estate, it can be sold, it can be mortgaged, uh, you can do financial things with it, right? That's uh, what happens with, with that. Um, an important thing to keep in mind is a peculiar paradox. We always talk about um, the participation of Wabanaki in the American Revolutionary War. What we don't talk about usually is that the enormous debt, financial debt that was incurred in the American Revolutionary War that the capitalists that financed that war back in Europe, primarily in Amsterdam, uh, there's a gigantic conglomerate of bankers in Amsterdam that helped finance the furnishing of the troops uh, with uh, equipment, with uniform, with food. Um, and that meant that there were interest-bearing loans that had to be paid back. And they were all carefully negotiated by people like Sam Adams, sorry, uh, the John Adams, uh, before he became president, of course, uh, he was uh, stationed in The Hague in the Netherlands uh, and was negotiating with these bankers for loans. And these are multi-million dollar loans in money then. That's like hundreds of millions of dollars in today's money if you take that uh, take into account inflation. So these um, interest-bearing loans, they had terms by, uh, at which these um, loans had to be paid back. But in addition to that, the interest had to be paid back. And if you have a young republic, with little revenue, where the cause of the war was no taxation without representation, people were already bled to death. They couldn't, often they didn't want to and couldn't pay the taxes. Uh, so you get the Shays Rebellion that uh, many of your audience may know about uh, in Massachusetts uh, of people who basically said, hey, damn it, that's going to be interesting. Now we say this, the same merchant elite in power during the uh, British monarchy, and then after the American uh, independence, they stay in power. It's the exact same families, the, the Bowden family, the Hancock family, the Adams family, it's all the same clique uh, that remains in power uh, and have huge land speculations here in Maine. Um, we talk about the Penobscot, of course, and the Passamaquoddy, but here in the Kennebec Valley, uh, the so-called Kennebec proprietors were active in a massive fraud uh, James Bowden, after whom uh, Bowden College is named, um, that was an incredible usurpation of Norishwalk Abenaki lands, and the Abenaki were still there. They had not gone, but they were conveniently, conveniently written out of history as having ceased to exist as a tribe, precisely what 100 years later or so, uh, as Darren was just referring to, um, tried to happen with the, with the Passamaquoddy. You don't exist as a tribe anymore, therefore you have no standing. So the, um, the relationship between land and the war of independence, whereby indigenous peoples were basically paying the bill, if you want to put it in blunt terms, uh, by having their lands taken away from them in order to pay the bills. That's uh, in a very succinct way. I've never realized that until quite recently when I began to look at a lot of the Dutch um, uh, archived papers to begin to understand the linkage between the rise of capitalism, the war of independence in the United States, and the dispossession of indigenous peoples. It's kind of an amazing 
um, entity that all is part of the same process that you, Donna, were just referring to as power and money. Um, and it's exactly true. And so um, regarding the, um, the, what Darren was talking about, the doctoring the first, first discovery, it's of course important to realize uh, and I think Darren also mentioned um, ethnocentrism. I think there's a term that Darren used uh, at one point. Um, all the monarchs, major monarchs, the emperors in Europe um, had to be uh, originally before the, the Protestant Reformation had to be uh, sanctioned by the Pope, uh, the Pope as the vicar of Christ. So you have to really look at the mindset of the um, 16th century, 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, uh, in terms of an eschatology that the second coming of the Christ could not happen until all corners of the earth would have been preached to and would have had the uh, benefit of the gospel. And only then an end would come to the enormous suffering, the famines, the warfare, the, the, the pestilences, the diseases, the pandemics, whatever were, were raging across the globe. So the idea was that the kings as king by the grace of God, they were not elected, they were king by the grace of God, uh, Rex Dei Gratia, uh, as kings by the grace of God, that they were instruments from that worldview to, uh, to spread the gospel. There was also you know, always, you see that in the title of the French king as the most Christian king, right? It's often is reference to the most Christian this, but that task was doubled, not only to spread their own secular power, but also to, uh, to spread the gospel and finance missionaries and convert uh, indigenous peoples to Christianity. And um, so that element is important um, to put that kind of global uh, conquest perspective in an ideological framework of the book of Revelations in essence. Yeah, so, so yeah, here, and, and Donna, hopefully you can hear me. The, um, I think that's a really important part of, you know, if, if one of our questions, Donna, is, you know, what is sovereignty? Or uh, I'd prefer to ask it, what is tribal sovereignty? But sovereignty is um, reliant on, as Harold mentioned, this framework from Europe, which exists, you know, through from God to a sovereign in the king um, in these monarchies that, um, you know, the modern political legal definition of what sovereignty is, the ability to govern all individuals and property found within one's borders of a nation, um, you know, are rooted in this very specific, um, uh, I mean, we think about, you know, the nation states that sort of drive international law and sort of their borders and the international laws and norms built up around them. I mean, there's a war raging right now vis-a-vis um, -vis these right uh, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, we, we tend to treat them as natural um, and, um, and, and normal, but they are a creation by humans and relatively recent at that in terms of our time on the planet. I think, you know, one of the real important debates that has, you know, framed up both in specific indigenous peoples and territories, say across our confederacy, Donna, the Wabanaki, as well as more internationally. Um, and these debates and frameworks have been expressed in things like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that um, really 
that, that document doesn't reference sovereignty at all per se um, in the way that we tend to think about it in um, the sort of fight for tribal sovereignty now, right? What, what that document does, and I think what, what is a really important productive space for sort of asking and answering the question of what is, what is it that we are seeking through our sovereignty as Wabanaki nations um, is, you know, about self-determination. It's about um, uh, our promise in, in managing our affairs into the future um, and building upon the legacy of our institutions and our systems of power and relation that, that are who we are as, as indigenous and Wabanaki people. So I think, you know, on the one hand, sovereignty per se as a kind of authority um, is not perhaps the end goal uh, of, of our tribal relations, but it is about control in terms of us controlling our own lands, resources, and, and people into the future, um, but not necessarily enacted in a sovereign, you know, European-American framework of certain forms of authority. So now, you know, I, it might look like that institutionally and otherwise in terms of our governance, but I do believe that the modifier um, tribal in sovereignty, tribal sovereignty is an important element that um, we are not seeking, um, and this is part of the tension around the Settlement Act, we are not seeking, you know, to be just an, you know, an, any, like any old municipality in the state of Maine, um, because we are different, right? We have a different culture, history, and relation to our land. And we also mobilize different traditions of governance when we enact and, and act as, as a nation. And, you know, the, the issue is, you know, what prevents us from doing that in a full sense as a Wabanaki nation is the fight for what is called sovereignty, but it is otherwise our institutions for ourselves into the future um, and managing our place and our relations on in our territory. Um, so I think, you know, that is a slightly more broad discussion than sovereignty per se, but it is also um, in thinking about, you know, the, the, the timeline and the legacies of the doctrine of discovery, um, help us understand, you know, this, you know, I guess we've really emphasized, you know, maybe we've gone back to the late 18th century, didn't really start in 1820 per se, but you know, starting in the 18th century, especially with the American um, um, documents uh, outside of these European uh, treaty traditions, and then going forward into the 19, all the way through the 19th century into the 1970s, um, you know, we have this articulation that with a federal interest, um, and this is in the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case that leads to the Settlement Act, um, is a recognition that we as, a, as um, uh, Indian nations here in Maine um, are part of this federal framework. That's what the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case decided, that the federal government, because of the things like the Non-Intercourse Act, has an affirmative duty to protect our interests because they are also federal interests. Um, and that leads to this situation um, that uh, goes up to the Settlement Act where we were winning you know, cases that we were part of this federal um, tribal sovereignty system. Um, and then this gets 
very um, set aside in 1980, which we won't talk about, but it is very much that our sovereignty and our sovereign control vis-a-vis Passamaquoddy v. Morton and this federal interest, which said, you know, you, you the federal government must represent um, the Passamaquoddy tribe and then therefore the Penobscot nation um, in court for lands taken illegally vis-a-vis -vis the Non-Intercourse Act. Um, that immediately, as Harold mentioned, clouded title because it said any, any treaty after 1790 was in violation of federal law, which is the you know more supreme law than the state law, that this was in violation and therefore the title was clouded to two thirds of the state of Maine. So, I mean, for me, like going back to first principles if people, and I've watched hearings over the last few days that um, I think <laughs> people are also unhappy with the Settlement Act on the non-tribal side, even though they are uh, at clear advantage in terms of the legal perspective. Um, I honestly think that starting over is a really important thing we want to reframe, especially as um, depending on what happens with our legislation. But you know, really, um, the idea that we had um, sovereign control over our own people in our own borders in, in 1979, and somehow we didn't have that uh, in 1980 after um, a federal and state law were were enacted um, is, is, is not in the spirit really even of this um, arrangement, however unfair. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's this classic thing, Donna. I mean, you saw it uh, again and again in the legislature, you know, who are we actually negotiating with um, when we as Wabanaki people are seeking our self-determined control over our own people, places and futures? Um, and how, you know, at what point does this get recognized? I mean, I do think it's the, the civil rights issue of our time in terms of the state of Maine, um, because it requires people to challenge themselves um, and their investments in what the current arrangement actually reflects. So for me, it is a, an attempt to rethink. Our exploration is an attempt at rethinking the possibilities of what this future is as well. Yeah, and I agree. I think uh, as Harold opened by saying, you know, you have to understand history and and how we got here uh, in order to actually, you know, know what's happened and know what's happening and have a vision for the future. And, and I think uh, that's why this show is important. Uh, so Harold, you've been quiet. <laughs> well, I was uh, interesting, uh, interested in, uh, in listening to uh, Darren and you uh, comment on the issue and Darren's distinction of tribal sovereignty. Um, and I was actually thinking that perhaps given the European ideological roots of uh, these concepts, um, not only the word sovereignty, but also the word tribe, these are all coming from a European linguistic repertoire whether um, the Wabanaki uh, might want to think about an indigenous concept. In other words, a word that you don't need to start tinkering with saying, well, you know, this is sovereignty X and this is sovereignty um, Y, but you actually use a term whereby you take full ownership, if you will, cultural ownership over the concept that articulates the idea of the self-government and uh, self-determination that uh, Darren was referring to. Um, so that was one thought. The other thought was um, 
there's a concept called uh, inherent sovereignty. And that's an important uh, concept in the sense that uh, some nations derive their sovereignty as a result, uh, derive their sovereignty from a treaty, for example, an international treaty that recognizes uh, the existence of a independent state. It happened with the United States uh, after the War of Independence. They declared independence in 1776, but that independence was not internationally recognized until 1783 at the Treaty of Paris, right? So there was a treaty that recognized that the rebellion by the American, 13 American colonies, that that resulted in a sovereign republic of the United States uh, of America. Uh, the Dutch had already recognized the United States uh, earlier in 19, uh, uh, sorry, in 1782, one year earlier, uh, and they did that in order to make the financing possible of the last leg of the war, which is an interesting um, side effect of sovereignty issues in order to uh, extend these huge loans uh, to a sovereign entity, uh, otherwise it would never be guaranteed to get that back. But uh, that inherent sovereignty uh, the, that notion uh, of inherent refers to the constitutional or essential character of something. In this case, uh, the Penobscot, for example, or the Passamaquoddy, or any other indigenous nations, where do they get that idea from that they have sovereignty? Where is it coming from? And I was looking at Joseph Orono when Orono spoke to um, uh, General Knox, Henry Knox, in 1784 when Knox tried to have Orono and the chiefs to sign the treaty that they refused. But Orono said, this is 1784, as in translation, I don't know um, what exactly was said in either in Penobscot or in French, perhaps he may have said it, I don't know, but it was translated, obviously. Uh, but he said, uh, 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 no person should interfere or take any of our lands, but that we should have them now, we sh why should we not hold the lands as the Almighty gave them to us? The Massachusetts General Court fixed the bounds at the head of the river. The English will come on us before, before and you on the other side, so that we shall have but little left. Then continues his speech, Orono is asking, um, he says, um, anyway, he goes on, but then in 1788, um, uh, the former war chief, um, uh, Orson Neptune, in 1788, it makes again a statement that, that pertains to the inherent sovereignty. It has not been derived from any kind of treaty, but that comes from another source. This is what he says um, in 1788. Um, Brothers, we were all one. We don't talk of hunting one another. We don't mean to take any lands from you. If anybody takes land from us, uh, it must be the British. Uh, for Massachusetts uh, and General Washington promised we should enjoy this country. General Washington and the General Cortes told us if anybody was going to take our lands from us, they would let us know. They told us if they knew anything was done against us, they would tell us. Brother, when we were at Kunduskeg two, two years earlier in 1786, we had not a right understanding of matters and we were pressed to make that treaty contrary to our inclinations. Brother, now you get the key, key line. Brother, God put us here. It was not the King of France or King George. We mean to stay on this island. The great God put us here. And we have been on this island 500 years. From this land, we make our living. This is the great general speech of all our young men. We don't know anything about writing. All that we know, we mean to have a right heart and a right tongue. Uh, brother, we don't incline to do anything about the treaty made at Kunduskeg or that writing. And then he basically refuses to sign. Here's 1788. 
uh, and then in 1796, uh, he, meaning uh, the, the, the second ranking chief, uh, uh, Neptune, uh, the father of Lieutenant Governor John Neptune, uh, he is not there to sign, which is very interesting. Um, and I have realized at one point, said, hey, was he ill? Uh, why was he not there? And I realized that a little bit like with the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act, that there was a resistance within the Penobscot Nation and the Passamaquoddy tribes to, to sign off on that Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act as well. And I think he was a, um, a hardliner resistor, if you will, um, Orson Neptune was, uh, and that's why he didn't show up. And that's pretty much the end of his power too. Yeah, okay, so we're getting low on time here. It just seems we get going and we have to stop. Uh, so you guys want to wrap things up in like a minute or so. Uh, Darren, start with you. Yeah, of course. And uh, yeah, I, I'm glad. I'm uh, always thankful, Harold, for your quotes from um, Wabanaki uh, people, um, however in translation. And it, 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 it draws me to... <clears throat> A quote attributed to the Penobscot diplomat um, Laurent, uh, Lawrence Sagarab, you know, probably 50 years before Joseph Orono, um, also reckoning with this idea of what sovereignty is and sort of the disabusement of it by um, first European and then for, for Laurent, uh, definitely European, the British, um, and then later American authorities, you know. And his quote, and I was looking for it, of course, <clears throat> can't find it exactly, but, you know, much like with Chief Orono, the idea that you are, you know, you are, you have your control as your king in your lands, and we have our control as, as, as kings of our uh, destiny, also given through our God, you know, that, that, you know, you see this effort to translate back into a European sovereign context, like our concepts. And I agree with you, like, that's why our concepts are sort of critical to framing it. But our, our diplomacies for the last 350 years at least have been, you know, oriented towards trying to get Europeans to understand like, oh, we get what you're saying. We, you're just using the wrong framework and ours is the important one in terms of our relationship and our management and engagement with our responsibilities to our places and people. And I think that that's what can and should dictate the next um, set of discussions as we move forward out of this um, um, various forms of hierarchy and, and really think about us as Wabanaki people shaping our own sort of political and, and, and um, future environments and, and relations with each other. Okay, Carol, minute. I could really uh, not say anything that would uh, top what Darren was just saying. Uh, so I hand it over to you, Donna. Carol, you surprised me. <laughs> okay. Before I end this part one series, I wanna make a brief statement about sovereignty. Sovereignty means different things to the state than it does to the tribes. I've been asked many times what tribal sovereignty would mean to the tribes if Maine gave them sovereignty. Here's my answer. The tribes already have sovereignty. The question is, what would it mean to the tribes if they were left alone to implement their sovereign status? There are those who believe the tribes are like children 
and can't handle sovereignty and will in fact do harm to their neighbors and the state. They have expressed the fear that there are so many things that could happen that we are just not aware of. The buzzword is unintended consequences. The tribes have been living in poverty with no chance of moving forward because of this way of thinking. History tells us the tribes have been treated badly, not only by the state, but by neighboring municipalities, towns, and townships who see the tribes as competition and a threat to their resources. In some instances that come to mind right off is the clean water issue uh, debated in the legislature, a human right that everyone has, except at least one tribal community here in Maine. Pleasant Point hasn't had drinking water or running water ever. They have been blocked by a nearby town fearing the tribe will take away or contaminate their water supply. It, it is strange that towns above and below Pleasant Point have access to clean water. It is a well-known fact that towns and municipalities located near tribal communities and tribally owned land have acted as takers from the tribes and not as partners. The idea of allowing municipalities, towns, or townships any control over tribal issues is not productive and never has been. Let me repeat that. The idea of allowing municipalities, towns, and townships any control over tribal issues is not productive and never has been. As to the fear mongering of unintended consequences, and given the history, between the state and the tribes, I believe the state has already experienced unintended consequences. The unintended consequences occur after they deceive the tribes with the legal treaties and with a legal system that defined tribes as wards and imbeciles. The state created laws and policies to control us and then realized they had created a dependent population. Not only had they created a dependent population, but it was costing them lots of money. The state then began a period of legislative studies in the 40s and 50s to determine how to stop paying the tribes, uh, what they owed in treaty obligations and anything else they could do to lessen the cost. The Proctor Report makes this clear. They began writing letters to the federal government requesting uh, the federal government to, to uh, pay for their mistakes. In the 1980s, uh, the Settlement Act, uh, the federal government did pay. They paid for everything. I find it ironic that now in 2022, the tribes are asking to be officially placed under, under federal jurisdiction, and there's a strong backlash from those in state government. It is time for the state to take responsibility for its past treatment of the tribes. It's time to put an end to this long history of poverty and neglect. It needs to stop impeding tribal efforts to be placed under federal law like the rest of Indian country. When it was in the state's best interest, the state wanted the federal government to take over the responsibilities for the tribes. Now, when they think the tribes may compete in some way for resources, they're against it. 
federal law would allow the tribes to move forward with what they envision for their economic future. It will allow a certain amount of freedom from those municipalities, towns, and townships who would act to harm them and keep them from prosperity. Being placed under federal jurisdiction would recognize tribal sovereignty and allow the tribes to deal directly with the federal government in, for access to clean water, direct emergency services, law enforcement, court, court services, housing, health, and business, all areas the state has neglected. Finally, the state and the tribes would have to deal with each other on an equal basis to make mutually beneficial decisions. It has the potential to create a totally new environment that would be respectful and productive for the first time in the state's 200 year history. In a world where there is so much chaos and evil, Maine could finally create some good. Do the right thing, Maine. So uh, next month, uh, we'll, we'll begin uh, part two of Unpacking Sovereignty uh, with an in-depth focus on the 1980 Settlement Act. So thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Webernacki Windows. I wanna thank professors Carol Prince, Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another uh, Webernacki Windows. <laughs>